All it took was a conversation with his wife. And he finally moved closer to the truth that he had been hiding. All it took was seeing how two men could love their children and how beloved they looked and felt. That's all it took to loosen the fearful grip political consequences had over the expression of clarity. What a relief when finally, at long last, the president this week had the audacity to lead. This week will long be remembered as the week that President Obama finally came out of the closet. Fear gets its power from our not looking at either the fear or what we're afraid of. The longer we refuse to look, the harder it is to believe there is nothing really to be afraid of. Over and over again, we hear that what finally broke open the closed heart, the painful contraction against love, is knowing just one person, one family, one individual, one story. One instance that finally challenges who we are and how we think the world really works and finally allows us to see what we refused to see before. You might say the moment of, I was blind, but now I see. But honestly, we are all blind, aren't we? Think about how what we fear blinds each of us in some unique way. If we fear heights, we're blind to the humility that vast perspectives bring. If we fear spiders, we are blind to splendor and danger of webs. If we fear death, we are blind to the mystery of the unknown. Each of us approaches the doors behind which our fears live with varying degrees of courage, apprehension, pensiveness, and trepidation. The poet Mark Nippo writes, It seems that whatever the door, whatever our fear be it of love or truth or even the prospect of death, we all have this choice again and again and again and again, avoiding that part of our house or opening the door and finding out more about ourselves by waiting until what is dark becomes seeable. Making the dark seeable. Making the dark seeable. I love that. That pretty much sums it up, don't you think? Making the dark seeable. Wendell Berry wrote it this way, I go among trees and sit still. All my stirring becomes quiet around me like circles on water. My tasks lie in their places where I left them asleep like cattle. 
And then what is afraid of me comes and lives a while in my sight. What it fears in me leaves me, and the fear of me leaves it. It sings, and I hear its song. And then what I fear comes. I live for a while in its sight. What I fear in it leaves it, and the fear of it leaves me. It sings. And I hear its song. In this week's Torah reading, Parshat Emor, there is a list in chapter 23 that is the list of the calendar of the Jewish year. Each of the holidays is introduced, and oddly enough, in the midst of this list, in the midst of this list, sandwiched between Passover, Shavuot, and Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, after Passover and Shavuot and before Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, the Torah interrupts the discussion of the holidays to remind us about a few laws that had already been introduced in chapter 19, some four chapters earlier, in Parshat Kiddushim. Chapter 23, verse 21, describes Shavuot. Call out a day of stopping, a special day. This is the announcement in verse 21 of Shavuot, Shavuot, the holiday of weeks, commemorated by the bringing of a harvest from a field of barley, a barley stalk, an omer. And immediately, the next verse, verse 22, And when you will harvest your field, Do not cut the corners of your fields. And the gatherings that fall on the ground, don't gather those up either. For the poor person and for the stranger, leave them. I am the timeless one, your God. The inclusion of these two mitzvot, peah, the corner of the field, and leket, the gathering of those sheaves that fall, is anomalous here. It doesn't fit. We're talking about holidays, Passover, great, Shavuot, great. We're about to talk about Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and let me interrupt this conversation about your holidays 101 with a little public service announcement about tithing for the poor. What is the meaning of the interruption of holidays with a reminder to take care of the poorest amongst us? And the second question, why must this teaching be repeated? It was just given to us four chapters before. Two questions. Rashi, of course, is not adverse to asking good questions. He's got a keen reading mind. This is what Rashi, the medieval commentator, writes. Chazar v'shina la'avor alayhem b'shnei lavin Amar rabbi abdimus b'rabbi Yosef Ma'ar ra'ah kosov l'ikna b'emsa ha'v'regalim Pesach v'yatzeret mikan v'rosh Hashanah v'yom kippurim v'achag mikan He asked the question, what did the Torah come along and give us Passover and Shavuot on one side, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur on the other side, and right here in the middle we have this little law about the poor people. 
שכל הנותן לקט שכחה ופאה לעני כראוי מעלין עליו הכתוב כאילו בנה בית המקדש והקריב קורבנותיו בתוכו. רש"י says The reason why the Torah has to interrupt this regularly scheduled program about holidays is to let you know every Jewish holiday in ancient Israel had in it the responsibility to go up to the sacred temple in Jerusalem and the Torah comes along to interrupt you to say that every time you turn your heart and your being to someone who is poor, it is as if you built the temple, not that you visited the temple. When we turn to the poor, the Torah interrupts the scheduled program calendrical description to tell you that giving to the poor is a sacred pilgrimage and that in that sacred pilgrimage you have built the temple you built the sacred temple by leaving your corner of your field without working it not bad right Rashi kind of answers both questions It had to be repeated here because we have the holidays and it had to come in the middle to tell you the centrality of this law beautiful right I prefer, though this is beautiful, a second interpretation. Rabbi Ephraim Lunshitz, the Kli Akar, says this. Smichut pasuk zeh leparshat ha'omen nir'al derech ha'midrash. The reason why the Torah comes here in verse 22 to teach us about the agricultural laws of those who need to be taken care of is that it comes directly after the verse in verse 21 that told us to cut the barley sheave for Shavuot. He says that's significant. Why is that significant? There's a Midrash. The Midrash says, In everything we do, we have spiritual practices surrounding us at all times. We go out to plow the field. We get a mitzvah in the Torah that tells us how to plow the field. We go out to seed the field. We get a mitzvah in the Torah that tells us how to seed the field and so on. You go out to cut the Omer, right? You go out to cut the Omer. You might think to yourself, that we just cut the Omer. We just cut this field. We just brought barley from this field for a mitzvah. And now we're done. Says something powerful. Verse 21 describes to us something that we do with the field. It says, hey, here's a sacred spiritual practice. Go out into the field and cut in the field this barley for Shavuot and bring it to the temple. Now you might say to yourself, wait a second. I just finished doing my religious obligation. Here's my little field. I cut the barley sheave from the, my field, and now you want me to go along and add on top of my religiosity two more things? I can't cut from the corner. I have to leave it for the poor people. And if I drop anything, please, I'm in the middle. I've just fulfilled my obligation. I'm a spiritual person. What do I have to worry about? The poor people. I'm in the middle of this, in the same field. I was just involved in the highest religious obligation in verse 21, and now in verse 22, I have more to do? Says the Kliyakar, there's always more to do. And it arrives in the middle of the holidays to teach us that there is never a bad time to do what is right. 
and specifically on the holiday when we are joyous and everything in us is pulling us towards the things that we would like to see. We would like to celebrate the beauty of Shavuot. We take these barley stalks and this sheave and we bring it to Jerusalem. Everything in us, our heart, is being pulled into a place of deep devotional bhakti, into the love of God, love of Jerusalem, love of the temple. I'm having my spiritual high. I'm going to Romamu. Now you want to talk also about social justice? Isn't it enough that I pray? Isn't it enough that I do what I'm supposed to do to work on myself? And now you have to lay a trip on me about the poor people? I was sitting with the social justice committee this week, and we were talking about the new initiative at Romamu that is our social justice work that we have chosen as a community, the work of food justice and working with hunger, that overwhelming issue. And I said, how am I going to get up and talk, I said, about it? Because when I know myself how hard it is to walk down the street and to let in what I see. I said, how can I, how can I as the rabbi and the leader of the community acknowledge that so often in our day-to-day lives, we keep at the periphery those painful places in our culture and in our society that might impinge upon whatever it is that we feel we're doing that is enough. And the last thing we want to hear is that we're not doing enough. The last thing somebody who has a field, who just finished his religious obligation, wants to hear, says the Kliyakar, is, wait, you're not done. There's two more things you have to do. There's tzedakah, there's, right, there's charity, and leaving those sheaves behind. Ah, uh, I know you cut the one and you're taking it to Jerusalem. You're great, but there's more work to do. And it's never a good time. And it's always the right time to speak the truth and to do what's right. So often we anticipate a reward for uncovering truth. For our efforts, we expect money and recognition. For sacrifice and kindness, we secretly expect acceptance and love. For spiritual practices, we expect to be left alone. Let me work on myself. And though it is true that often effort that we make is seen and kindness is embraced, the reward for breathing is not applause, but air. The reward for climbing is not a promotion, but new sight. And the reward for kindness done is not being seen as kind, but the electricity of giving that keeps us alive. The closer that we get to the core of who we are, everyone, the more synonymous effort is with reward. Effort and reward become one and the same. The reward for uncovering the truth is the experience of being honest. The reward for caring about those who are less fortunate than us is the very experience of compassion that is our natural state. So as we, we think together about the momentous occasion of this week, let us remember that what was courageous this week was that that which could not be seen before in an honest way was probably for the first time seen and made visible when that which was in the closet came out, 
when those who were on the periphery and the margins were finally given their just dignity and integrity. There is no wall of avoidance or denial or excuse that can keep the rawness of life from running through us. Because in the end, deeper than the deepest pain in us is our hunger for justice, for equality, for dignity, and for love. And deep is the hunger for those who are unheard to be heard, those who are unseen to be seen. Deep is our hunger and our faith that compassion that begins in my heart must in the end arrive at yours. And deep is our faith that love felt must be love lived. Deeper than our personal joy is our solidarity with all of life. And deep is our abiding faith that religion and spiritual practices that serve to illuminate the mind, inspire the soul, and nourish the heart must kindle a fire that burns to manifest spiritual activism to reach all of those who have been marginalized and forgotten, those whom we pray will soon be afforded all the dignity they deserve. And deep is my faith in you. In this kihila kidosha, this sangha, this sacred community of hearts aiming for God that we can make a difference. Our social justice work focusing on hunger and social and food justice can make a difference. And I urge all of you to get involved. And finally, as you leave shul tonight, a call to action. Please open your eyes tonight to see and feel as much as you can allow yourself to see and feel. As you leave shul tonight, take Shabbat with you and notice the edges of where your heart can't go and take a breath in. As you leave shul tonight, I invite you to be intimate with your innate, natural, compassionate heart. May the day come soon when the words of the prophet, Lo ra'av la lechem, that there will no longer be a hunger for bread or a thirst for water, but in the end, a deep yearning to hear the words of the living God. Amen.